Welcome to the Astra uh, podcast. Uh, today we're talking with researcher Jeffrey Kotick, which is going to introduce you as, uh, so for a little bit of his work and tell us of his latest research. Um, Jeffrey uh, had the, the dissertation on Buddhist astrology and astral magic in the Tang Dynasty from the Leiden University, and he is an expert a researcher on the oriental traditions of horoscopic astrology. Uh, he is studying the transmission from east to east and back again of all the techniques and the practices of astrology in the Far East. Welcome, Welcome. to the Astra. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your research interests or your current work? Right, so my current work in the area of the history of astrology and astronomy, as you say, uh, documents the transmission of astrology first from India into China, and then I also look at the transmission of astrology from China into Japan, medieval Japan. But it's not just Indian astrology that we're looking at, we're also looking at uh, the history of Persian and uh, Indo-Iranian astrology into China, as well as the iconography. So this has been another um, field that I've been delving into, which is the iconography of astrology. So when we say astrological iconography, we're referring to the representations of the zodiac signs, the planets, and also the lunar mansions, and also some of the other uh, figures that you see, like directional deities and so forth. And over the course of the last several years, what I've discovered is that there are icons that are very clearly Indian in origin, and they correspond to uh, descriptions of the planets in texts like the uh, Agni Purana and other texts. But then there's also a set of icons that we find uh, in, China, in China and Japan that have parallels with what we see in the early Islamic tradition and uh, also the medieval Persian tradition. So I've argued that this, these sort of uh, icons that we see that uh, are shared between the Islamic world and China probably have an Iranian heritage behind them, but I haven't been able to conclusively prove that. Uh, also, I've been looking at the history of uh, horoscopy, in particular the casting of birth charts and the reading of those charts in uh, China, going to about the 16th century. So what I've discovered is that horoscopy became very popular from the 9th century, and then once you get to the 15th, 16th century, there's massive compendia compiled um, in the range of you know dozens and dozens of chapters that go into uh, reading charts and also very fine techniques on uh, you know uh, identifying and analyzing planetary positions. And there's also a lot of Chinese native elements that got mixed in with this late tradition, but you can still um, see within that sort of horoscopy elements that were very clearly brought over from um, the, I wouldn't say the Western world, but I would usually say the Indo-Iranian world. And so horoscopy was just as popular in medieval and uh, late imperial China as it was in Europe. And one of my recent papers that I published compared the 12 houses in the Lot of Fortune in William Lilly's work from the 17th century with what we see in a 16th century Chinese astrologer's work, Wan Menying. And so what I discovered was that if you compare the two authors on just the doctrine of the 12 houses alone, 
what you find is that they were very, very similar. They actually had more and sim more common features with one another than differences. Though the the major difference in the Chinese side is that the twelfth house um, is is uh, is concerned with uh, with material appearance of the native, and so it's not necessarily strictly speaking about misfortune, and that's anomalous in uh, the history of astrology. So, but generally speaking, you have like the triplicity rulers, you have the 12 houses, you have all the fundamental um, doctrines and techniques of horoscopy in China. And also it seems that the transmission of horoscopy into China starting around the year 800 was really kicked off with the, tra with the translation of material based on Dorotheus of Sidon's work. Now the text that they translated was probably different from what was translated into Arabic by Al-Tabari. But there's enough common features between the two. So when you compare uh, the fragments of uh, the Dorotheus translation in Chinese with David Ingrie or Benjamin Dyke's translations um, of the Arabic uh, text, Arabic translation by Al-Tabari, you can identify a lot of common uh, elements, common features. So it's very clear that there was this transmission of, uh, I guess you could say even Hellenistic astrology through this Iranian intermediary into China around the year 800. So it's a very exciting and developing field. And then if you go even deeper into this, you can see that around the 14th century, they were translating uh, Arabic astrology directly into Chinese, um, such as the al Kal. And so this, this, this is something that uh, hasn't been um, investigated at great detail. But now that we have digital sources as well, everything is digitized. It's getting increasingly easier to um, search through massive texts and to identify different astrological doctrines and to see how they were used. And then on top of that, there's also the Japanese tradition called Tsukuyodo, which existed from um, around the late 10th century until about the early 14th century. And fortunately, we have some extent horoscopes, including the natal charts, but also the analysis of the astrologers that are preserved in Japan. And there's also a lot of handwritten manuscripts in Japan that haven't been digitized. And I hope in the future to have access to these documents, because then I can... Uh, translate them and, um, and explain more about the tradition of East Asian astrology. So that's basically my uh, my research for the moment. It is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Uh, I am, um, and so what we are talking about is different lines of tradition in the, in the East, in the Far East, so to say, in all the, this uh, region. But, uh, um, well, I have many questions and I think I'll answer Luis has too. But uh, one of the things that I noticed is uh, you said that the Japanese tradition existed between one uh, a certain period of time, and then what happened? It uh, was extinct or disappeared somehow. Yeah, it seems to have disappeared um, with the collapse of the aristocracy in the around the fourteenth fourteenth century or so. So there was a lot of ongoing wars in in Japan around that time. And it seems that the aristocracy, which supported these professional astrologers, and most of them were also Buddhist monks, so the aristocracy which supported them um, either collapsed or was replaced. Mm -hmm. And the they they were also practitioners of astro magic. So if somebody had a unfavorable horoscope, then the astrologer monk would also perform rituals, mm -hmm. um, apotropaic rituals, in order to you know uh, ward off those uh, ill-fated omens. Uh, so it, it faded away, and it wasn't entirely forgotten, however. So a lot of their um, works and some of their uh, 
rituals and so forth are preserved in various sources. Japan is sort of a really great repository of all this medieval culture because their monasteries and even some private libraries preserve uh, documents going back many, many centuries. And because a lot of these monasteries were not harmed during all the uh, civil wars and so forth, and because Japan was never successfully invaded by a foreign power, uh, a lot of these documents are still in great condition and uh, they're still often privately owned. So it's hard to get a hold of these manuscripts too because they're privately owned and they're not publicly cataloged either. But I know they exist because I've seen reference, references to them. So, we're treasures. Right, right. I, I hope I hope one day somebody can say, "Hey, I have a whole um, book of horoscopes from the medieval period. Can you look at this? Can you tell me about this or translate them?" Because we only have two extent horoscopes from Japan, like fully extent horoscopes, and we have some frag fragmented fragments of horoscopes um, in China as well. So we're piecing together the tradition of uh, East Asian horoscopy from multiple sources mm -hmm. um, and then in Japan I mean in China too it seems that astrology um, continued on even after the 16th century and then now if you talk to astrologers in Taiwan and Hong Kong they'll often say that their tradition they were taught by a tradition that goes back you know 500 600 years but it's hard for me to verify their claims because you could you know even one generation ago you could have gotten a hold of all the texts from earlier centuries and studied the material yourself and used it. And so uh, it's it's the, the modern traditions of astrology in China and Japan also have been influenced by Western astrology because Western astrology, modern Western astrology has also been translated into Japanese and Chinese. So it's a, it's a, it's a very complex, very complex history. And exactly. there's, there's not, there's not enough people researching this. Yes. Well, uh, in, within my research, uh, as you know, it's about Jesuits and, and their relationship with astrology. And one of the, the items I've, I've encountered is they're going to China and eventually Japan, and there's some kind of an interchange with the, the, the Western tradition and their own. So, uh, and I still it's still unclear exactly how influential is this new information coming in. We know that it is in terms of calculation, new instruments, new conceptions of mm -hmm. quantum that are important at that time. But what you're saying is that there's already uh, an incredible dense and ancient tradition coming from the West in much earlier periods already existing there. So probably uh, there have been, it would be interesting to, to know more about that reception. Well, he, he, even around the year 800, there was Nestorian Christians who, uh, it seemed, who were responsible for translating astrology and also some amount of astronomy into Chinese. So uh, the, the Christian church, the Nestorian Christian church, which was identified with the Persians at the time, mm -hmm. um, was, was a prominent, uh, I guess what, intermediary for this knowledge to be translated. And then later on you have the uh, Arabic materials and possibly Persian materials too translated into Chinese mm -hmm. and the uh, the well presumably the people who were translating this in like Mongol and uh, Ming Dynasty China they probably would have come from Central Asia or might, they might have been Turkish and, uh, and most of them had Muslim names too so there's this, this strong contribution to the history of science in China uh, that we owe to the uh, the Muslim peoples, the Muslim astrologers in the uh, imperial period. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating because 
it's never as simple as we think. <laughs> right. Quite complex and really it places astrology in a much more world wider con context. Uh, context. Uh, right. Yeah, so it's difficult to, to separate between East and Western yes. traditions. It's, it's all like ideas coming in. travel yeah. and yeah. people travel. But there is a question I have to, to ask. Uh, because uh, non-historians, uh, I'm sure they will uh, want to know. Uh, because when we think of um, uh, Chinese astrology today, it is a completely different system. And um, it's the first thing that comes to mind for non-historians. When we, we, we say Chinese astrology, they would think of these, uh, the year of the, of the rat and the, the year mm -hmm. of the dragon. And it's a completely different system. And it has... Uh, actually not to do directly with the stars, it's more like a cycle. And it's also very interesting, but the, uh, what you are telling is that the astrology as we know it uh, yeah, survived yeah. and actually thrived in uh, China and other surrounding countries, but there is also this tradition. So how does these two uh, traditions uh, articulate or the, do the, are they just parallel lines or they in mix or how they live together <laughs> how they manage to live together well judging from the extent materials the tradition of horoscopy could be mixed together with the Chinese uh, hemorology so the, the study of auspicious days on the calendar and so they could do both of those simultaneously and the uh, I think the other thing we have to understand is that when we say Chinese astrology and what people in the Western world in Europe and North America understand as Chinese astrology is what has been translated into Western languages, into European languages. And if you go to Taiwan and China, you actually see that they do have forms of astrology that focus on the positions of the planets and they have birth charts and so on. So I think it's called uh, Do. And uh, there, there is this tradition, and one of my uh, friends practices this professionally in Montreal. But none of this has been translated into English. So when we say like year of the rat, year of the bull, and so on, that's also commonly understood in uh, East Asian culture, uh, in Chinese culture. So you know, everybody knows the the animal under which they were born every year, and everybody is supposed to have a certain personality based on that. So, and then they also observe like the lunar new year. And uh, and also the seasonal markers and so forth and like you eat the uh, uh, the uh, the moon cakes and for autumn festival and so on. So there also is that tradition, but that's actually as you say that's more hemorology and not horoscopy. So, but they definitely had a very strong tradition of horoscopy throughout, from at least the ninth century until around the sixteenth seventeenth century, as far as uh, the historical record shows. And even Marco Polo, when Marco Polo went to China. He records that there were all these different nationalities of astrologers practicing in the capital. So there were Chinese astrologers, Turkish, Muslim, and uh, maybe even, I haven't read it, but maybe there might even have been some Mongols, because we also know that the Mongols inherited um, traditions of astrology. Um, they might have also received some of that from the Tibetan side. And Tibetan astrology is another area of study that uh, isn't as well documented as it should be and I really hope somebody in the future who is good with Tibetan can um, write a good book that surveys all of the horoscopy that's done in uh, 
Tibet traditionally. And so in Dharamsala, that's where the Dalai Lama lives in India, there's actually a school of astrology and uh, they, they learn how to calculate positions of planets on hand, by hand, on paper still, so they don't use computers, they do the very traditional training. Mm -hmm. well, that's so in, yeah, so in, in a lot of extent, most of these traditions are still living traditions. It's Definitely. Yeah. Continue, and, and, and it is, uh, I have to say this again, it's fascinating to see how they are all um, somehow connected, mm -hmm. although they all have uh, different specificities according to their different cultures, uh, but the idea of the correlation between the movements of the planets and events on Earth, it's there somehow mm -hmm. in yeah. different ways. Yes. Uh, so, and I, I was just now question that arose me is that um, how do they, um, for example, uh, here we have a very connect, a very strict connection between astrology practice and the cosmology, usually Aristotelian based, with all the explanations of why the influence of the planets exists in a certain way. How does that uh, interact, for example, in China? I know probably in different places it would be different with their own philosophy and cosmic conception, which is comparable right. from ours. The four elements, uh, all right. Well, definitely the horoscopy in China didn't um, inherit any of the Aristotelian cosmology, such as the spheres and so on, although those are mentioned in the translations of Arabic astrology in the 14th century. Those were never incorporated into Chinese cosmology. Uh, Chinese cosmology until Basically, I think the 17th century was largely um, flat Earth based. They, they, in the year 718, there was an Indian astronomer in China, um, Siddhartha Gautama, and he translated a manual of mathematical astronomy called the Navagraha Karana, and that's that's a reconstructed translation of the title. And this manual of mathematical astronomy. Um, specifies how to calculate latitude and you need to know your latitude to properly predict eclipses and other um, movements of the of the celestial uh, sphere so they were exposed to this concept of latitude and spherical earth cosmology but it never actually filtered into mainstream Chinese astronomy which was dominated, it was monopolized by the court at the time. So Chinese astronomers um, in subsequent centuries never made reference to this concept of latitude or spherical Earth cosmology. Now, how did they view the planets? Well, as you mentioned, they had the idea of the uh, five elements. So, for example, Venus is the metal star and uh, Saturn is the Earth star. And originally they viewed them as just material bodies that signaled the will of heaven. And it was from that that you could ascertain and determine various omens in the sky. And that's native Chinese court omenology or native Chinese court uh, astrology. And then with the introduction of Buddhism into uh, East Asia, uh, they also incorporated some um, Indian cosmology. So once the Indian materials start talking about the planets, they always view them as the graha. And Graha are sentient deities, So, and also in the anthropological depictions of them, they're usually depicted as uh, people. So, you know, Venus is, is um, in, well, especially in the Indo-Iranian tradition, she's always playing a some sort of lute or guitar-like instrument. And you could do various rituals to appease these deities. 
and from there you could uh, also modify your fate. So the cosmology was very much rooted in a, I guess you could say, a religious worldview. And even with the translation of Ptolemaic astrology from Arabic in the 14th century, it seems the astrologers still continued to view the planets as somehow sentient deities. And they also um, deified also the lunar stations and the zodiac signs. So in Taoist literature, you have various lines, verses that will say like, you know, Hail Cancer, Hail Leo, Hail Sagittarius. And then it also goes to the lunar mansions. So they were also viewed as um, deities. And I think that carried over from Indian religious traditions, uh, particularly Buddhism, that saw the nakshatras, the lunar mansions, as um, deities embodied in the stars. But we don't have the Aristotelian worldview until the Jesuits of the in the 16th, 17th centuries. Yes, that's why I asked you. That. I know mm-hmm. that the in-depth introduction of that cosmic conception much, much lighter. So it was interesting to see. It's interesting to see the astrology working without the Aristotelian, because I think for someone who studies uh, Western astrology, it's very clear that the two are almost inseparable. Mm-hmm. But you can see uh, from this uh, out branch and, and this uh, own development that they can be completely separated and yes. there can be and a practice. Still yeah, yeah, the practice can still exist within more or less similar or at least fundamental uh, principles, the same fundamental principles, but with a different uh, conception of the universe. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite interesting. Yes. Uh, and it, it separates um, it separates the two things. The it's, two concepts, yeah. yes. Yeah. It is so interesting to see the concept of astrology, but um, like dressed in a different uh, culture mm-hmm. with a different, uh, completely different tone. And also, this uh, replies to my next question that was, uh, so if a soldier already existed in China, why was they, why were they translating uh, astrological manuals? But now, well, okay, now I know. Well, <laughs> now I from what I know, and perhaps I can add something to it, uh, the idea that I understand from the Jesuits later on is because they're introducing calculation, mathematics, and more precision. And probably Aristotelian concept. And Aristotelian yeah. concept. And in terms of astrology, what I understand is that they are also trying to introduce Western astrology as something which is more accurate in terms mm-hmm. of mathematically speaking and prediction than mm-hmm. what they have currently and that they're. That brings us to another question. I'm sorry, we are like bombarding, (laughs) but this is interesting. Uh, How were they calculating? Were they? Did they have? I think they have tables, but were they also uh, observing directly? How how were they calculating the horoscopes? Well, it depends on uh, the culture and place. It seems that the common astrologers would have used ephemerides the tables indicating planetary positions, and then they would have done a, a bit of mathematics, arithmetic, to calculate the location of the planet on a given day at a given hour. Um, however, their way of calculating the ascendant um, is very, very different from how it was done in the West because basically they didn't actually calculate the position of the ascendant most of the time. What they did was they looked at the um, position of the sun so the, the Chinese divide the day into 12 units of time. And so people could follow the course of time in the night using water clocks. And then during the daytime, they might have actually used the, uh, 
the drums because the city would announce, okay, this hour has passed and they would drum and then people would keep track of the daytime hours like that too. And so you would, you would, your parents would remember that the hour you were born because that was important for hemorology. And then you would tell the astrologer the hour of your birth and then they would put the sun in the point in the sky that would correspond to that hour. However, that doesn't necessarily mean great accuracy because um, it, it varies over time, right? So yeah. these weren't strictly defined seasonal um, hours and they weren't aligned with the equinox either, it seems. So it was kind of approximate. And as a result of that too, the ascendant doesn't take into account long and short ascension of the different um, yeah. zodiac signs. But they weren't actually calculating zodiac signs, they were actually positioning the planets relative to the 28 lunar stations the native Chinese lunar stations, which equal 365.25 degrees in total, not 360 degrees. Wow. So, and then they divided the 28 lunar stations into roughly 12 um, equally divided sections, which correspond to the 12 zodiac signs. So it was very, very approximate. Mm -hmm. So when the Jesuits showed up and they said, hey, I'll show you how to calculate the exact degree of the ascendant, that was far greater. That was far greater accuracy than yeah. what um, the local astrologers were doing. That being said, I'm pretty confident that the uh, Muslim astrologers were probably using arithmetic to calculate on um, the exact degree of the ascendant. But that sort of mathematics wasn't really. It was translated into Chinese a few times, but for some reason, the Chinese astronomers just never really adopted it. If you look at the uh, manuals of astronomy over the centuries, they weren't actually incorporating these foreign concepts so much. In some cases, they, they took some elements that were useful for them, like um, being able to calculate the position of the lunar apogee, and also the nodals and so the, no, the, the northern and southern nodes. And from that, then they could also make better eclipse predictions. So Chinese astronomy was also augmented by um, foreign elements, but at the same time, too, there was a limit to what they adopted from it. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that would explain that in the criticism that the Jesuits do that state that they cannot calculate for the eclipses as accurately as they can because they're lacking some, some mathematical right. elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. And the reason why they accepted a few elements and uh, rejected or ignored some others, it's also interesting to, to try to understand why were they open to yeah. some ideas and not to others? I yeah. don't know, maybe yeah. this has to do, because this has to do with mathematics, well, it had to do with tr the translation of those mathematics into Chinese was, was different. Mm -hmm. So it was it was it was it was potentially difficult for them to uh, translate some of that into Chinese, and for the Chinese astronomers to be able to make use of it, because they actually uh, the Chinese would do their calculations with counting rods, mm -hmm. and they would note that they their, their notation system was different. They weren't using Arabic or Sanskrit numerals. Um, now, there were Indian astronomers and then also later uh, Muslim astrologers who would have been using numerical notations uh, mm -hmm. that we would be familiar with, but then the native Chinese astronomers weren't using that system. Mm -hmm. So so it yeah. would be difficult to translate one thing into the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, there was there was even criticism of the Navagraha Karana, which I said was translated in uh, 718. And when there was a debate whether this text had uh, been plagiarized by one of the Chinese astronomers named Yixing. He was a monk. Mm -hmm. And after he died, the Indians at court, some of them accused Yixing of plagiarizing the Navagraha Karana. 
Mm. Um, but then the court, when they tried to actually use this in a practical way, they said it actually wasn't accurate. They said uh, the other calendars were far more accurate than this one. But that could have been because they didn't actually understand how to use those mathematical formulas, like sine function and calculating the ascendant and spherical earth cosmology and latitude and these concepts. So there wasn't a really strong push to mod modify native Chinese astronomy. The other thing is that the, the Chinese were always deferential to the ancients, so they would always defer to the ancients. And if the ancients were wrong about something, they, were, they, would, they would kind of frame it in such a way they would say that, well, they weren't wrong entirely, but we just need to update things a bit because times have changed. Mm -hmm. So to completely cast away the old methods and to incorporate this, this, this new form of mathematics from the West would have been quite revolutionary. And they just didn't do that in the end. They only took some parts of it. And you can see that incorporated into the uh, astronomy of, of the Chinese, especially starting around the year 800. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think mathematics is always, the, the acceptance of mathematics and the concepts that go with it, the numerals, the way that mathematical mathematics is expressed in, lang in different languages and cultures always gives this advantage uh, of a precision from one culture to the other, which is quite interesting in this case. And as you said, the Arabs and the Indians themselves have good mathematics already, so they should be able, those should be able to calculate with certain precision. Now I have a question, uh, is, and how is the representation of an horoscope following the horoscopic tradition in the Chinese context? Does it have the same kind of diagram that we we see in the West or is it something completely different? Well, it seems that the early ones that would um, correspond Well, the ones that we have from Japan, which are based on the Chinese model were circular with um, 12 segments representing the uh, the 12 houses and then later what you find is rectangular uh, mm -hmm. horoscopes and they're different from the the sort of uh, triangular diamond shaped um, ones that we see in the um, Islamicate and Persian traditions and, and Turkish traditions. So it seems that they started off with circular ones and then they moved on to using rectangular ones. The rectangular ones, I imagine, might have been um, also um, due to foreign influence. Okay. okay. Well, we see something similar, I think, in Hellenistic period where they have the circular initial yoga one that's kind, circular, kind of, kind and of then circular. move on to the, to the rectangular or like the diamond. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was also uh, curious about something that you said right in the beginning of our conversation about the 12th house being the uh, physical uh, possessions or physical, yeah, phys 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 physical appearance. Physical wow. appearance. That is strange because in uh, Western astrology, it's the first house is the it's related somehow with the physical appearance. Could this be like a mistranslation or do you think it's something else? It could have been. Um, it could have been, um, this is a very good question and I can't really explain why this, this, this anomaly exists. So in, in Chinese horoscopy, it, the first house is always, uh, associated with fate, but that's not necessarily your physical appearance. That's just your fate, fate yeah. right? Um, and then the, the 12th house, 12th house gets associated with, uh, physical appearance. Um, I could have, my, my, my speculation would be is that so the sun is rising from the east and it starts in the east and the first um, house that it would be passing through would be the time of your formation as a uh, 
as a as a as a for as a, as a as a fetus and also as an infant, mm -hmm. and then as the sun goes over the midheaven and then downwards, that would represent the latter parts of your life. So my my thinking is it might have something to do with the position of the sun um, relative to the eastern horizon. Something something which is appearing and rising. So right. As well, okay, yeah, it 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 it's could also be, yes. it could be yes. It's, but it's, does it something. also mean like unfortunate, unfortunate events or limitations? Like, uh, does it does the twelfth house also accumulates other meanings or this meaning? Um, the, the the literature that I've looked at tends to just express it as appearance um, oh. in the Ch in the Chinese tradition. But that's so. Yeah, so like the sixth house is understood as uh, as slaves and servants, yes, and that's an unfortunate one. And also the eighth house, which is usually associated um, with illness and great misfortune. The misfort the greatest misfortune is actually the eighth house in, oh, in Chinese Chinese horoscopy, not the twelfth house. Mm -hmm. Yes, also in Western astrology, it yeah, is that, that, associated in, with death. In that regard, it's quite yes. in alignment with the, the, the right the tradition, the original. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, I think but most, most, as my paper points out, though, most of the concepts of the twelve houses are identical with what you see in in the uh, in the Western traditions and also the uh, Arab traditions. It would really help if we had access to Sasanian Iranian literature on astrology, but almost none of it exists now. So we can't really do so many comparisons. Yes, yes, because we, there's the missing link uh, between the, the transmission there, it's, which is quite uh, sad. And we know that the Persians were really great astrologers, and they very much supported astrology. They were professional astrologers. It seems that a lot of the Sasanian elite astrologers were probably literate in Greek. Mm -hmm. um, so they had translated the, the Greek literature um, and some Indian literature into Persian, into Pahlavi, and, but some of the elite... Uh, elites in, in the aristocracy also read Greeks because like the Sasanians were to some extent Hellenized as well And so they had access to Greek learning too So and then in the eastern regions there would have been people presumably who were bilingual in uh, Sanskrit as well And they had also invited Sanskrit astrologers to the court So we know that in the early like uh, period like after the 220s there were translations of uh, literature from Sanskrit and Greek into, and possibly even Syriac too, into Persian. But unfortunately, just none of this literature is extant, and we just don't have access to it. Yeah, but did they do show us that the mixture of, of, of traditions and 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 even uh, references in, in geographical references is so so great that it becomes very difficult to point. This is exactly mm -hmm. origin because. There can be earlier exchange, later exchange, and it's without the manuscripts or without the text. It's very difficult to to know accurately who is uh, proposing a certain tradition, mm -hmm. or at least for the the, the major central uh, corpus uh, of the doctrine. Um, and that also leads to the question of where the Arabic lunar mansions come from, the Al Manazal. So some people have argued that it's based on an indigenous system of timekeeping relative to the stars, but then others have said that it was probably carried over from India because there's uh, 28 lunar mansions, 28 manazal. Mm -hmm. But then you also have the lunar stations attested in the Pallavi text, the uh, Bundisht, which is the creation um, myth 
it's a it's a it's a document that um, explains the creation myth of Zoroastrianism, and so what that shows you is that the the Zoroastrians and the Persians had brought in the lunar stations, and the question is, did the Arabs come up with this concept independently, or was it inherited from the earlier Persian tradition, or did they learn it from the Indians? So that's another big question. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah because we we, we keep uh, finding parallels and similarities, and then. It is extremely, extremely difficult to understand which one came first, but it's, also, right. it's one of the, for me, one of the great joys of uh, being an historian. It's kind right. of something that we keep finding new questions and new interesting questions. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I said before, nothing is ever simple, uh, <laughs> right. not, never direct. It always has this complexity and, the, uh, yeah, and this interesting complexity which makes uh, the studying and the research much more uh, enjoyable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. at some point, I must say. <laughs> right, and, and there's, there's always going to be debates about this because of the paucity of evidence. We don't always have enough, en enough evidence to um, determine conclusively something. So there'll be a lot of theories that will um, be ongoing probably for decades, if not centuries from now on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true, yeah. Well, a lot to do. <laughs> a lot to do, exactly, yeah. Yeah, we definitely your, do. Your paper was, was quite interesting in the way that you compared two different, completely different traditions later. Both are later, so you're comparing uh, William Lilly's definition of the houses and, and use of the part of fortune with, sorry, we're no, one meaning. Wen Minying, yes, exactly, who also was writing, writing uh, in Chinese a similar text, so a comparable text in terms of, of use. And it's quite amazing. The, the parallels are, are there. You can see perfectly well that they're speaking about the same tradition, the same root corpus uh, mm -hmm. of doctrine, but then with the, the, the expected differences in... Cultural differences. Right. So, uh, yeah. But then there's also there's little features too, like... For example, William Lilly does not rever reverse the lot of fortune, mm -hmm. yes. but the Chinese tradition does. They so do. what? Yeah. So so what that tells you is that in the Chinese tradition is that their lot of fortune and their definition of the lots was probably not derived from Ptolemaic astrology. Mm -hmm. So although um, the Al Mutkal incorporates a lot of material from the Tetrabiblos, mm -hmm. and that was translated from Arabic in the 14th century. Uh, that text, it, it seemed, it, it's quoted in later um, Chinese astrological texts, but it wasn't um, all, it wasn't, in, it, it wasn't terribly influential in China. So, and then the definition of the lots that we have dated going back to the Tang Dynasty is largely identical with what, with what Dor Dorotheus of Sidon gives us. So, it seems that uh, the, the Chinese definition of the lots came more from Dorothean astrology than Ptolemaic. So... Which gives us a very good example of how the fact that certain traditions are emphasized and others not the right, the end result uh, uh, right development of a certain technique or a certain practice, which is also quite interesting because they didn't have all the revision that uh, we had here in the 16th and, and 17th right. century, of which. Lily is one end example, uh, exactly. So, right. So they, they, it's also that the Chinese, they never really had skeptics or critics of astrology in any great number. So the Chinese weren't challenged about the uh, efficacy of astrology. Whereas in, in the Christian world, for example, the Christians constantly had to justify the legitimacy of astrology 
But then in China, because they viewed the planets either as immaterial forces, which are also documented in ancient sources, or they viewed them as sentient deities, um, in Chinese polytheism, there wasn't a question of whether this was sacrilege or heresy. They yeah, just viewed, they, they, were com they were comfortable with either worldview, and you see both worldviews expressed in the literature as well. And they didn't see it as controversial. So if, if metal star and Venus, one of them can one of them can be material, one of them can be a goddess. They it's polytheism, so they were willing to see divinity in nature anyway, like mountains and rivers and yeah. and, and and all sorts of deities in, in the natural world. So it wasn't such a great leap for them to uh, to view the planets also as deities. Exactly. And and that's also why Claudius Ptolemy's Petrobiblos, I think, became so popular in in Europe was because. It didn't assume that the planets were divinities. It just said that they're immaterial forces. Mm -hmm. and, and then they have these various occult influences on us over the course of time. Yes. Uh, it gives a, it gives a more, um, well, as you said, material. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, which is more um, agreeable to Christianity and to, this, to the conception of faith and the unique God. So it, things true. will tend to towards that position, while uh, in India, China, where, where you have poetism, it is, it's mm -hmm. not an issue. So things develop yeah, completely different and with more freedom in that regard. Uh, mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of the mechanism, if we can call right. it, uh, of right. work. Yeah. That's, also, that's, also, that's also a very interesting topic, is how, how um, religion and religious thought or philosophical thought, if we want, also affects the way certain practices develop uh, in different civilizations. Right. Yeah. So here is a good example. And I think the, the other area of research that we can't ignore is uh, historical astral magic, because astral magic, especially texts like Picatrix, the uh, translation of the Gaeta Hakim, makes great use of electional astrology. So in order to um, properly make a talisman, you have to be able to calculate the positions of the planets relative to the ascendant exactly but also the tradition of picatrix flourished in europe um, the earlier tradition also flourished in the islamicate world as gaia al hakim and then there's other texts as well and from that perspective however the, the planets are definitely spirits so they're even even in a monotheist society you could have these astrologers who viewed the planets as spirits and then they had to justify that they're not satanic, that they're not demonic. Mm. Um, but they, over the course of the centuries, they got away with this um, uh, <laughs> for the most part until the Inquisition started, um, you know, banging on people's doors. And <laughs> you could, apparently you could be put on trial in the Inquisition if you just had a copy of the Picatrix. This is what I've read. So the astrology and the astromagical text too is very important to study. And if you compare some of that astrological magic that you see in texts like the Picatrix with what you see in some Chinese texts, there's very strong parallels. Like um, in Picatrix, it says for Mars, you burn red sandalwood incense. And then in Chinese, it says the same thing. In um, And also for Saturn, that you burn Styrax, which is a form of incense. And then in the Chinese, it says that as well. So there's a lot of strong parallels between the two. So I think astral magic should also be studied alongside the history of astrology because astral magic is astrology. It's just astrology plus Practical. magic. Practical. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other text that you were mentioning is the uh, Bethran of Purity. I'm not familiar with that text. It's the, uh, what is the Arabic name? Is uh, Ikhwan al-Safar. Okay. 
well it is it is also uh, it's kind of a group of anonymous practitioners they mm -hmm. call themselves muslim they call themselves the veteran of purity and they left a, a, a series of letters very well more or less similar to the picatrix Mm -hmm. but uh, also regarding all sorts of uh, astrological practices and talismans mm -hmm. and uh, also philosophical also but, th but they, they they preserve this knowledge in uh, in a way mm -hmm. and uh, there is other other interesting um, something that I also find very interesting it's the Nabataean tradition oh right 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 they were also regarding uh, agriculture but also mm. magical, so to say, magical agriculture and rituals. So this is also a very, very interesting uh, area of study. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's yeah. also an under understudied area which is Syriac astrology. So in the Syriac language, there's a number of extant documents that deal with astrology, and also their medical literature, such as like uh, the uh, so-called Book of Medicines. There's several dozen pages that just deals with astrology. And, and they are not studied, <laughs> properly studied. Well, I mean, they, well, when I talk to Syriac specialists, they are aware of their existence, but nobody studies them because most people who read Syriac are interested in the history of the Syriac church. Um, they're not necessarily interested in all of this astrology. So there's very, there's few people who can, um, in the academic world, who read Syriac to begin with, but to find somebody who does Syriac plus astrology, and wants to go through these manuscripts is, is <laughs> it, it, it's it, it's it's very rare. Let's just say. So I'm hoping I'm so hoping one day a Syriac scholar can uh, tell us what's in all these manuscripts, which are cataloged. They just haven't been studied or translated. Maybe mm. someone will watch this podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if mind. someone is watching us, someone please <laughs> wants wants to do a specific research and is fond of this and has these capabilities, please. For, for, PhD, for a PhD project, it would be perfect, I think. But, yes, I think uh, that would be a very good good way of going with it. Yeah. So again, uh, uh, still a lot to a be lot done, to do, yes. which is yes. good because this is a very interesting field of study. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, good times ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very I'm very confident that the, that the 21st century will see a great deal of uh, development in, in the study of the history of astrology. Mm -hmm. It's also, I think there's also the question of legitimizing our field of study, because for the longest time, history of science has been responsible for looking at the history of astrology, and most of the time... There's almost like this embarrassing tone, like, yes, okay. astronomers used to believe in astrology, but we don't do any more, but it's important to the history of astronomy. Yeah. So let's just talk about the astronomy side of astrology. And then I've tried to convince religious studies to take astrology seriously. I say, look, the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, the Taoists, the Buddhists, everybody practiced horoscopy in the past. So we should teach introduction to classical astrology in the classroom to undergraduates and then they can apply what they have learned, and when they read Augustine, and Augustine is criticizing astrology, they'll get an idea of what he was okay. criticizing, mm -hmm. precisely. And if you look at the old worldview of horoscopic astrology in the Hellenistic and the Mesopotamian world, it's polytheist. They viewed the planets as gods. That's why we still call them Jupiter and Mars and Venus. And so it's religion. I think it should be treated as an area of study within religious studies. But what I've discovered is that a lot of committees and uh, research funding bodies, they don't like this idea. So well, one, of, one, of the, one thing we have to do is just try to legitimize our area of study. 
So the history of science has problems with it, and religious studies has problems with it, and so we're sort of straddled outside of the mainstream. But I think if we keep pursuing this and and producing good research, then in in the long term we can kind of create a field onto itself. We have to create a field. Yeah, also, or, or when it comes to the history of uh, of science, and we are both in the history of science uh, field. Uh, it, the, the problem is the word science as it is understood today. Because Precisely. science today evokes this idea of, you know, laboratories and uh, mechanical uh, repeating and testing. Mm -hmm. So people tend to move away from it, like exact sciences. And it's almost offensive for a non-historian to think that astrology could fit into this field. And uh, also for historians of science, they, 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 they don't want to be, uh, I don't so, know, associated, associated with it. With it. <laughs> so, the wretched scientists are science. still alive, unfortunately. It's what uh, we do, we, we try to explain, and sometimes we manage to get our, our <laughs> to, oh, dear, we manage course, yeah. to finish the sentence. <laughs> we try to explain that it is science in more in the etymological sense mm -hmm. of knowledge, yeah. the history yeah. of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that people argue is that uh, this field is interesting only for a few half a dozen crazy people. <laughs> um, what we argue is just what you said. It's like uh, astrology is interesting not only for people who study astrology, but for historians in general, for medievalists, for people who study classic culture, for people who study mathematics, for religion. people who study astronomy, religion, uh, yeah. medicine, um, literature, yeah. all sorts of things. Because the way astrology is not just a practice, is a way to explain the world. So in pre-modern times, this was present, and this was the way people agreed and talked about when they were explaining the world to each other, whether mm -hmm. they were astrologers or not. Mm -hmm. same, same way that we now talk about DNA or atoms or whatever, mm -hmm. yeah. and we all agree about this. And I'm sure that uh, a few hundred years from now, people will be criticizing our ideas. Right. So it is just the way they were talking about this. So it is also relevant for all sorts of studies that address at least at least the mm -hmm. pre-modern world. Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah. I think I, I totally agree. We yeah, have to create yeah. a, a field. A field, yeah. A field of history of astrology, which then can be applied in religious studies, cultural studies, scientific studies, uh, literature, art. Um, art also, yes, I forgot. Oh, art history too, definitely art history. That's okay. that's something that it, it's it's very understudied, especially when you go into the Eastern world. I would imagine, yes. yes. Here we already have a lot of some interesting works on iconography. Well, of, Louise, his uh, MA was about uh, the representations of science and yes, astrology. Yes, not not completely astrology. Was also medicine, but, mm -hmm. but yes, it's 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 a, a very interesting topic. The way that certain concepts are then expressed into images, and it it has been looked upon, but not in depth yet. But I imagine in the West, uh, in the East. Uh, things probably are still a lot to explain. I know I thought very curious the, the papers and, and the discussions you do about these, Im these images uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it, you can recognize certain traits of the astrological conception within images that are produced in a completely co different cultural context. Right, right. 
fascinating. For instance, I saw once, um, I don't, I think it was like in a Jewish synagogue, I don't remember, the representation of the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. And instead of the sign of Virgo, we had only two hands, like embroidering. Oh, interesting. Not a woman, just two hands, mm -hmm. embroidering, yeah. making mm -hmm. embroidery. So it's completely different, but we know what it is. We understand. We understand what it is. It's a Virgo, a virgin, a woman, a young, a young woman. Also, the virgin can be like a mermaid. Sometimes right. it is. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole field there as well. Hard uh, history is also... Uh, I think hard history of all fields, I think, I might be wrong at this, but I think it has been the most opened field to accept the understanding of astrology and the, as, a, as a, a means to understand the representation uh, in general. I think Warburg, Abby Warburg, uh, right. those, those studies were... Um, Pioneer in the sense that they, they open up that field of study uh, and perhaps it is the least resistant uh, to, to study this kind of phenomenon, but uh, uh, other fields can be quite, quite, quite close. Well, I think our, our, our history is, is very much concerned with the representation of the divine and Christ and, and uh, religious figures. So I think also looking at representations of astrology isn't offensive to scholars of art history. Uh, whereas I find in religious studies, there's this sort of hesitation, if not embarrassment, because, <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's also a lot of times too, as scholars, whether they're conscious of it or not, are often following a theological line. So I published a paper about um, astrological determinism in Indian Buddhism, mm -hmm. and nobody has ever pointed this out before that hey, Indian Buddhists all believed in astrology, except for a few very rare skeptics, mm -hmm. uh, because everybody has you know, fairly is fairly thought, well, Indian Buddhists believe in karma, which is that your actions in past lives um, determine your um, experiences in this life, and then your karma in this life will affect your future lives. So it's not entirely deterministic, but it, it's semi-deterministic, but it's based on action, not on the movements of the stars or of the gods and so forth. But what you find is that when you look at the Indian literature, Buddhists all believed in astrology, but nobody had pointed that out before. Um, so what happens, I feel, is that in religious studies, that there's a tendency to, um, not, not, not all scholars do this, and this is a very general statement, but what I've noticed is that they tend to follow the theological line. They tend to be sort of influenced by the prescriptive rather than the descriptive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, according to Augustine and according to various other Christian authors, you are not supposed to be practicing astrology if you are a Christian. But when you look at Christian history... You yes. have even William Lilly, he's writing Christian astrology, and Christians were practicing astrology all the time, and they still do. <laughs> and I can give you the example of my, my research and my, my PhD, which is right. exactly the Jesuits. And the Jesuits are not only practicing, they're also teaching astrology. They are priests. <laughs> and everyone thought that uh, until a couple of years ago, everyone thought, well, the Jesuits will not touch astrology because they, they are in the side of the orthodoxy, so they will be against, they will be promoting the, the sanctions on astrology and that's as always things are not exactly that uh, simple uh, and they're more complex and there are debates uh, within themselves uh, within the, the hierarchy how mm -hmm. what, what they can do or what they cannot do and well let, let's hope that's well, this done. is a discussion yeah. that we should bring also to the students because for instance we had uh, taught 
um, seminars on astrology and astrology proper at university and uh, uh, for students of mathematics, philosophy, different areas. And they come in like a bit like, well, I wouldn't say ashamed, but a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> yes. But then we begin talking and they get less inhibited. And it's so interesting to see how they are, they are um, eager to, to get this information mm -hmm. and how this information fits into something that they were missing mm -hmm. in their own fields, even yeah. if it's not astrology, because it's such an integral part of our culture mm -hmm. that they they can finally have this the missing link, so to yeah, say, right. in different areas. And I'm talking about different areas. Mm -hmm. So it is also, and also religion. So when people get less uh, ashamed of this kind of difficult and strange um, thing, uh, they, they, they do earn a lot, they, they gain a lot from yeah, it. They finally can study. understand the context in which right. they practice yes. and how the thought is organized in a certain culture, a certain time. Yeah, also, also from a purely commercial point of view, I think if universities were to entertain the idea of having introduction to classical horoscopy, they would find that those courses would fill up very quickly. <laughs> I'm sure they would. They, they always want courses that students will take because then that's good for the university budget. Um, yes. So I mean, it's something I've, I've tried to convince. I've tried to convince uh, departments to seriously consider this. I mean, there's very few. I think. I mean, relatively amongst um, active scholars, there's very few people who could teach classical astrology. But if there is somebody who does do it and they could do it well, I think the students would love. I mean, on the first day, the students would be like. I want to look at my birth chart and that's the first thing they would want to look at right mm -hmm. and so you could have it over the course of three or four months of the course you teach the doctrines of classical horoscopy and then whether they believe in it or not they can at least like look at their own chart and interpret it as somebody in like medieval europe did or in the hellenistic age would have looked at it and even if they want to criticize at least they know how to criticize. Well, they, know what they, <laughs> they, are, they know what they're criticizing yes, they are, at least they know. most of the time they don't so because right. uh, when they, they talk about uh, ancient astrology or medieval or pre-modern astrology they, they put they think about contemporary astrology which, which is completely different right. and well, it, it is completely different, to say the least. So, um, at least they knew how to criticize and what they were. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think it has been tried before, because I recall reading, I don't I don't recall exactly which book was it, but there was an introduction on a translation of an Arabic work from a Spanish professor in the university, in which he stated that he would teach before discussing ancient science, uh, I think it's Arabic science, so, so a little um, later period, but he would teach rudiment and fundaments of astrology with the Tetrabibles and other main, main texts, so that at least the students would know what they were talking about and what they're translating. And I think he would encourage them to experiment with their own charts and apply it to their own life, so they see how that would happen in 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 other times so that they would have right. practical knowledge and yeah i think it's a good idea uh, it has to be done properly or right. the problem is it can turn into a circus very quickly yes, it can and, and i can understand that certain universities would be a bit hesitant in bringing that in and then you have the sci the scientific uh hardcore um 
posture that would be utterly against such a thing. So, so, so this is the uniqueness of astrology, even the academic study of the history of astrology is that um, it's something that both the hard scientists and the theologians can both disagree should not be in the university. Exactly. <laughs> yes. yes. And yet some of them understand because the head of our department, uh, history of science, he does understand. He's not even into astrology, but he understands its Obviously, importance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, people who study medieval, uh, medieval culture, medieval science, they they do have to incorporate some some knowledge of astrology. Yes, yes. Uh, I would returning, for example, for art art history, we can see a lot of times basic astrological iconography, and I'm not talking about the zodiac, but planets or other <laughs> misunderstood as calendrical things or representation of the weekdays or so, the, week, the months, and they're not. We're talking about astrological representation, which is absolutely embedded in that mentality and that culture, and they have they don't, don't know, they don't know about it, it's not taught. They, or like, for example, the Antikythera mechanism, which was fished out of the Mediterranean in Greece, the descriptions of it, they always say, oh, it was, a, it was, a, it was to calculate astro astronomical positions. But nobody wants to say why somebody would design that and why somebody would spend lots and lots of money <laughs> to have one of those built and shipped across the sea. It's, it was that, it was that, that was for astrology. Exactly. Of course, they don't need they, they, they don't need the position of the planets for anything else. They sometimes they say it's for navigation. And well, the sun and the moon yeah. and, and okay, yeah. but not why do you need the position of Jupiter for navigation? I don't know. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, I'm not sailing, but <laughs> right. <laughs> it's also, it's also when you're sailing across the Mediterranean, it's it's a bit easier than sailing on the open oceans. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. No, but that's true. That's that's something that we we encounter completely. So it is. Oh yes, they have these tables, and they they spend huge amounts of money in producing tables and books and uh, with for the navigation for the astronomy and for navigation only, and, only. And you start looking at it and say, no, it's not. This is <laughs> right. completely astrological practice. Yes, it can be applied to medicine. It can be applied to meteorology, of course. Oh, but, but it's astrology, and right. it, it, it's difficult for them to to, to swallow to that and accept mm -hmm. that that's the case, and that's okay. It's time. Yeah. I, I think with our seminars, it. we open a little bit of space, but we still see people saying that they they, they don't want to say things like uh, astrological uh, medicine, for instance. So they go for yatro medicine or yeah, really some other name. Yeah, some other name. name. Let's call it some other name because this. We cannot so, say the so, word. So we avoid the strongs at all costs. We avoid the A right. word. The yeah. A word. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of interesting yeah. to see. But it it's is also... Better, uh, it, think, is, yeah. it is. It is. It is also interesting to see how people, when they, they lose the inhibition, how they react with a lot of curiosity. Especially, mm -hmm. especially when they understand the difference between this, what has been done today, and it's really not that good, and uh, what uh, was astrology in uh, pre-modern times. Mm -hmm. So when they understand this, they are finally at ease to go there without being confused with other people. <laughs> with right, right. Other people. <laughs> that is very interesting yeah, to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of work to be done. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I hope that um, this project, your project, and all, all the, that the work we've been doing and will do, if all goes well, uh, into the research of astrology, will Establish 
a discipline of the history of astrology yes. more properly, which is not dependent on other fields other to fields. exist, which is a problem that you were pointing out. It's mm -hmm. always in that and place. it's also important that we keep communicating with each other, even if it's different, uh, different periods, different different cultures, mm -hmm. because it's so important for uh, this ex exchange of ideas. Yeah. Because as you just demonstrated, things are not straightforward. They right. change, people communicate, people travel. Yeah. And and astrology and horoscopy in this in this sense, astrology in this sense, it's much more universal and global. A mm -hmm. much more global phenomenon that, that usually it's taken for. Usually we are very Eurocentric in a way of looking at astrology yes. and it's it's so it's kind of a universal yeah. concept. Yeah, it's all over the ancient world and, and yeah. the also all the civilizations that uh, we historically have the, the map. Uh, yeah. Well, well, um, okay. Well, this was this was a pleasure speaking to you and uh, well, well, pleasure. Yes. Best, yeah. of, best of best of luck with the website and the podcast and everything. I mean, I'm I'm looking very much looking forward to this and. I will definitely introduce your your podcast to all of my colleagues. I think they'll they'll get a lot out of this. Thank you. Yes, uh, yeah, we will we'll intend to do more. And uh, of course, you're invited if you have a paper, a specific topic that you would like to discuss. And mm -hmm. please let us know, and we can, and we'll keep in touch. We'll, we'll keep in touch. Definitely, with, definitely. Take of this. So that's good. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. It was a pleasure. <laughs> it was a pleasure. So have a good night then. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. -bye. Take care.